0: I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 7. Uh, Romans, chapter 7, reading verses 1 to 6. And before I read, uh, as Brad mentioned, uh, even in his prayer, um, Carol Wilson was here this last Sunday, and she passed away unexpectedly this week. It was a reminder to me and a hope to all of us that. We are not guaranteed any amount of time here on this earth. This could be your last Sunday to gather and worship. But we were also reminded yesterday, as we looked at God's word, from the book of Hebrews chapter 12, that when we gather together for corporate worship, we are gathering in the presence of the angels and of the spirits of the righteous made perfect. As Brad said, Carol's worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ in perfect sinlessness. And so we too gather together as brothers and sisters with the saints who have gone before us. And as we come and and sit before the Word of God, uh, we know that this alone is our hope. This alone is the truth that can uphold us. This alone is the truth that can save us. And so we must pay careful attention to it. Let's hear God's Word. Romans chapter 7, reading verses 1 through 6. Paul writes... so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Amen, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us as we study his word. Our Father, this could indeed be the last time that we hear your word preached. And so Lord, we ask that you would not leave us to our own Devices to our own understandings, to our own abilities. Would you come now by your Holy Spirit? And would you teach us? Would you help us, O Lord, to understand our relationship to the law aright? And we pray that you would show us again the glories of the gospel, the glories of our freedom in Jesus Christ, the glorious way that you have given us your spirit, that we might walk in the law of liberty. Lord, we pray. That you would honor your own name by converting those who are unconverted and by building up the saints. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you follow college athletics, uh, you have certainly heard of the transfer portal. And if you don't follow college athletics, uh, you have no idea what the transfer portal is. The transfer portal is uh, this NCAA policy that allows student athletes to kind of move back and forth or, or from one school to another uh, and, and to be able to, to play immediately when they get to that school. I don't understand it fully. I don't even know if college coaches understand it fully. Uh, right? But uh, if you can't just leave a school and show up at another school and say, I'm here, I want to play for you. Right? You have to go through the transfer portal, but if you go through the transfer portal, right, then you can transfer lawfully. You can, can, can leave one school and, and go to another school and you can start playing for that school right away. And so over the past few years, this has changed the, the face of college sports. Uh, one of the things we've seen are players who, for whatever reason, uh, at school A, they don't thrive, right? They don't have a good experience. They don't succeed. Uh, or they, you know, they kind of come to a dead end in their, their playing career. And then they, they switch to school B and everything changes. Right? They, maybe it's the new coaches they're playing for. Maybe it's the new offensive or defensive schemes. Maybe it's the, they themselves have changed in the midst of this move. And all of a sudden, they, they blossom, they thrive, they succeed where they are. Now, as an LSU fan, I'm biased. And sort of the, the poster story, the poster child for this story is Joe Burrow, right? Leaving Ohio State, coming to, to LSU. But Lane Kiffin is working that transfer portal hard. So you old Miss fans will certainly have someone else that you can put before me, I can use as an illustration soon. The point is this, because of a lawful transition, right, from one institution to another, sometimes everything changes for a player's good. Well, here in our text, Paul is using a a different illustration to make essentially the same point. But instead of using the word sometimes, the operative adverb is always always, because believers in Jesus, says Paul, have been transferred from the law to Christ, and everything has changed for our good. Now, before we look at Paul's train of logic here in these six verses, let's remember where we are in this letter to the Romans. We have seen in chapters one to three uh, that, that all mankind is under the condemning curse of the law of God. No one can be saved by obeying the law, because we don't obey it. We're condemned, we're under the curse of the law. And so in chapters three and four, Paul has showed us that justification, righteousness, acceptance with God is a gift that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And ever since chapter five, Paul has been explaining what the implications of this glorious gospel are and what they are not. Chapter six has been focusing upon the what they are not because Paul knows how easy it could be for someone to conclude that if God justifies the ungodly, right, if we are declared righteous through faith in Jesus apart from works of the law, then hey, it doesn't matter now if we keep the law or not. It doesn't matter how we live. We can live freely however we wanna live. And so antinomians, those who are against the law, uh, they see this as a fabulous conclusion, right? and they seek to take full advantage of it in, in lawless living. On the other hand, legalists think this is a dangerous conclusion, right? And so they reject the premise that we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But Paul rejects both the antinomian and the legalist. right? He, he says, look, the, the, the premise is absolutely true, the legalist. We are justified by faith alone. But to the antinomian, he says, the conclusion is absolutely false. Because as we've seen in chapter six, we have been united to Jesus Christ. And so not only do we have forgiveness of sins and, and righteousness imputed by grace through faith in Jesus, but also by grace, we have died with Jesus to sin. We have been raised with Jesus to walk in newness of life. And so, as Paul said in chapter 6, verse 14, sin will not be master over us because we are not under the law, but under grace. Now, last week we saw in chapter 6, verses 15 to 23, how again Paul is guarding against either mis, uh, you know, unintentional misunderstanding of this principle or, or intentional abuse of this principle that we're not under law. But under grace. Again, he says, "Look, it doesn't mean that we're free to sin with impunity, because we no longer are slaves of sin, but of God and of righteousness and of obedience." But now we come to our text. And in Romans chapter seven, verses one to six, Paul's continuing the same theme. And he wants to go back to what he said in chapter six, verse 14, and, and make sure that we understand what does he mean when he says that we are not under law? He wants wants to make sure that we understand and and, and think rightly about our relationship to the law of God. And so here in chapter 7 that we'll be looking over the next three Sundays, uh, we are going to be exploring this important topic. It's vital that we grasp what Paul is teaching here in Romans 7. Because as we have just said, there are dangers, there are ditches on both sides of the gospel. And the vitality and the joy of our Christian life depends on avoiding both legalism and lawlessness. Right? Rejecting both of those ditches, because both legalism and lawlessness lead us away from Christ and lead only to death, only to despair. But the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, leads to life, to joy, to peace, to holiness. And so this morning, I want us to to look at this text under three heads. I want you to see three things. First, the picture. Secondly, the point. And third, the purpose. The picture, the point, and the purpose. Let's look at the the picture together. In verses 1 to 3, Paul uses the illustration of marriage to explain what it means that the Christian is no longer under law. You you see the general statement there in in verse 1. He says, look, the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. We know this. We get this, right? Everyone is sort of common sense. If you're dead, the law has no more authority over you. Your your legal relationships, your legal obligations, they've been irreversibly altered by your death. You're no longer alive to fulfill your agreements. You're no longer alive to, to be held accountable for your actions before the law. Well, so then in in verses 2 to 3, Paul gives us a, a specific illustration of this general principle. He says, look, death severs a person's relationship to the law as it pertains to marriage. He says a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. If a couple is married and the wife goes and marries someone else, another man, She's an adulteress, right? She has committed adultery. She is guilty of adultery before the law. And the law would rightly call her an adulteress because she's still married to one man. She has just gone and married another man. But Paul says, if her husband has died and she marries another man, then the law has nothing to say to her. She's been freed and released from the law of marriage that condemns being married to, to a second man when you're married to a first man who says that's adultery, now she is free to remarry with a clean and a clear conscience. There's no scarlet letter A that would be embroidered on her. If there were a lady in town who, who saw her with her, her new husband and said, you're an adulteress, you're an adulteress, the lady would know and everyone around would know, well, no, her, her first husband died. She, she was free to remarry, right? That charge is baseless. It's groundless. This marriage, the second marriage, the remarriage, is not unlawful, it's lawful. Death has changed everything. And the law's accusation, the law's condemnation, the threat of penalty for adultery is groundless, it's toothless, there's nothing to it. So that's the picture, that's the, the illustration that Paul gives us there in verses 1 to 3. Now what's the point? The point is found in verses 4 to 6. This is the reality that that picture in verses one to three illustrated. And look at how Paul puts it there in verse four. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. See, Paul is saying, it's not just that you've died to sin with Jesus when he died on the cross. That's what he said back in chapter six, verse two. But we've also died to the law. Through the body of Christ, that's another way of saying through his death on the cross. And now that we have died to the law, we are free to be joined to another, to belong to another, to be married to Jesus, who is no longer dead, but was raised from the dead and lives forevermore. Now, now you may have noticed that there in verse 4, Paul actually sort of changes the direction of the, the, the illustration, doesn't he? He inverts it. In the picture, it was the the husband who died and the wife who was free to remarry. But in the reality, it's we who die. We die to the law, and we are remarried to Jesus. Now, don't get tripped up over this. There's really no other way Paul could have put it. He couldn't speak of the death of the woman in the illustration because dead people don't remarry. But nor could he speak about the death of the law. Because God's holy and good and righteous law never dies. As we'll see next week, it's a revelation of his holy character. And so the point, though, is that a death has occurred that releases the legal bond decisively, completely. We have died with Christ to the law. And so we are no longer under the law. Look at how Paul puts it in verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. But now we have to ask this question. We see what Paul's doing here. We see the illustration. We see the point he's trying to make. But in what sense has the Christian died to the law? Here's what it can't mean. It cannot mean, Paul cannot mean that we've died to the law as a rule of life. right. as the standard of how we are called to live before God. Not only would that fly in the face of everything Paul's already said in chapter 6, but as we're about to see, it will even contradict what he writes in this passage. No, When Paul says we have died to the law, he means we have died to the law as it is a covenant of works. We've died to the law as that which demands perfection and declares judgment upon anyone who isn't perfect. Let me remind you of a story to help us understand this. Do you remember the conversation that Jesus had with the lawyer in Luke chapter 10, right before he told the parable of the Good Samaritan? You remember this? The lawyer wanted to actually put Jesus to the test. And so he comes to Jesus and he asks him, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus could sniff out this man's legalistic works righteousness heart from a mile away. And, and so he, he, he knows that this man is operating, you know, under as, as one who is under the law as a covenant of works, who thinks that he can earn his salvation by his obedience. And so just like he does with the rich young ruler, Jesus calls the man's bluff, right? He answers a fool according to his folly. And he says, well, what's written in the law? How does it, how does it read to you? And the man answers correctly. He says, well, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And it says, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus answers him and says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this. You want to play this works righteousness game, Jesus is saying? Okay, then do it. Obey the law. Obey the law perfectly and you'll inherit eternal life. But if you actually listen to the law, here's what's implied here. If you listen to the law, you'll figure out pretty quickly that you can't do it. You can't obey the law perfectly because the law's demands are far above our ability to keep them. The law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, with everything that you have, and love your neighbor as you love yourself with the same energy and attention and focus and care that you love yourself love your neighbor. Is it any wonder then that the man, the text says in in Luke 10, wishing to justify himself says, and who is my neighbor, right? Let me lessen the standard of the law so that I can actually try to keep the law. And Jesus says, no, no, you can't get away with this. In Adam, you see, by nature, we are dead in sin. We are all of us under the law as a covenant of works. We are married to the law. We are subject to its precepts and to its penalties, to its demands and to its curses. The law says do this and live. And if you don't do it, you're dead. If you don't do it perfectly, you're dead, right? But we, like Christian and the Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, we carry this burden of sin upon our back. We can never make it up this cliff. We will never be able to do this and live. Dante's Inferno has the inscription over hell, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. You see, that inscription is not just over hell. It's over the covenant of works in this life. It's hopeless. It's hopeless. We cannot... We cannot be saved by the law. But here is Paul's point in this passage. In Christ, we have died to the law as a way of salvation. We have died to the liability and the penalty that the law inflicts on everyone who disobeys even the least commandment. We have died to the condemnation of the law. Through faith in Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God who died for our sins, Christians, those who believe in Jesus, you have already fulfilled the law perfectly. You have already endured and suffered the death penalty the law insists on for lawbreakers. Jesus took the suffering on the cross that we deserved. Jesus suffered the death penalty in our place. He was our substitute. And therefore the law has already executed judgment on us. When we trust in him, Jesus has borne the curse of the law in our place, as we saw in our assurance of pardon this morning from Galatians chapter 3. And therefore, Paul is saying, we are dead to the law as a covenant of works. We have been released from its captivity. We are united to Jesus Christ. We have been married to him now. The law has no more claim upon us. It cannot threaten us. It cannot terrorize us. It cannot molest us. It cannot accuse us. It cannot condemn us. It cannot punish us. If we want to, again, sort of change the the direction of the illustration, it's like someone was in the middle of strangling you. And while they were in the middle of strangling you, they had a heart attack and they died and you were freed. And Paul is saying the same way you have died to the law that held you captive, that law that condemned you. has lost its condemning hold upon you through faith in Jesus Christ. You have been joined to Jesus. You belong to him forevermore. So that's the point. That's the point that Paul is trying to make here. The freedom that is ours, freedom from the curse of the law, freedom from the condemnation of the law. But now finally, what's the purpose of all this? What is the the purpose of our death to the law, of our transfer from the law to Christ? Well, you see it at the end of verses 4 and verse 6. Paul says, We have died to the law so that we might belong to another in order that we may bear fruit for God. And then again at at verse 6, We've been released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. And not in the old way of the written code. Do you see why I said that that Paul can't mean that we've died to the law as it is a rule of life? No, dying to the law, being no longer under the law. It doesn't mean that we stop bearing fruit and serving. But no, it means that we bear fruit and we serve God through Christ and by the power of the Spirit. We've been freed from marriage, the law, not to be single, as it were, to live without a husband, but to belong to Jesus. So that we bear fruit no longer for death, but for God. We serve God rather than serving self and sin and Satan. God has married us to his son so that now we are finally able to keep the law. And here's the thing you've got to see. Verse 5, look at it. When we were living in the flesh, Paul says, that, that is, when we were unregenerate in Adam, the law actually couldn't and didn't even enable us to keep itself. On the contrary, what does Paul say? While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. You see what Paul is saying? The law in our unregenerate state actually... Caused us to sin more. Not because there was anything wrong with the law, as Paul's going to say next week, but because there was something wrong with us. The, the, the law stimulated more and more sin in our hearts. You see, it's, it's not just that Jesus has freed us from the condemnation of the law, He's also freed us from the inability of the law. Let's jump ahead really quickly. Look at chapter 8. Flip the page. Or Look down the page. Look at chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Look at what Paul says here. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do you hear what Paul is saying there? The law can't even enable us to keep itself. And again, we know this sort of intuitively, don't we? Right? We, we, we understand that, that when the law tells us, do not do this, when it forbids something, right? when it says you are not allowed to eat this fruit, the unregenerate man says, oh yeah, watch me. Right? Watch me. You've told me not to do it. That's exactly what I'm going to do. Sin's power is the law, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Sin uses the law to to, to get us to work more and more sin. And so the law provokes sin when we are living in the flesh by what it prohibits, but also provokes sin by what it commands, namely perfection. We saw it this past winter Olympics, didn't we? Michaela Schifrin, you know, she skied out. What does that mean? It means that as she was trying to do the slalom, she missed a pole. And if you miss one pole in slalom, you're disqualified. You're out. You don't even worry about going down the rest of the mountain because it's pointless. You've already missed the one pole. You might as well just stop. In the same way, the law comes and says, you've got to be perfect. You, you want to you live by the law? Okay, do it live, keep the law perfectly. But if you know that if you just miss one flag, just one pole, you're out, then what incentive do you have to keep on obeying the law? You know you've already sinned that one sin. And so eventually you just say, what's the point? I'm already too far gone. I'm just gonna do what I wanna do anyway. So so the point here is that, that Paul is saying the law cannot enable us to keep itself. In fact, the law does the exact opposite. It leads us and provokes more and more sin, but in Christ, but in Christ, we have been freed from captivity to the law's condemnation, from captivity to the law's inability to serve in the newness of the Spirit. As opposed to the old way, that the bare law without the Spirit, the law is a covenant of works that gives no enabling to accomplish itself. Now, as we saw in Ezekiel 36, now in the new covenant, the law has been written on our hearts. This final installment of the covenant of grace, accomplished and fulfilled by Jesus, we have the fullness of the Spirit dwelling in our hearts, enabling us to obey the law from the heart, to obey in liberty rather than in bondage. See, now we know that even if we miss a flag, even if we ski out, We're not disqualified because Jesus has qualified us perfectly. And so therefore we can press on. We can keep on going down the mountain. We can keep skiing because we, even in our failures, even in our falls, we are bearing fruit for God. We are serving in the strength of the spirit, producing the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of holiness as we mentioned the little phrase a couple of weeks ago, we are no longer struggling to be free, but we are free to struggle, free to pursue holiness and the fear of God. How does Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1? Having these promises, beloved, pursue, cleanse yourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, pursuing holiness, perfecting holiness, striving for holiness in the fear of God. So here's the thing, if you don't care about obeying the law, you are not a Christian, right? No matter what you say, if you don't care about obeying the law, you're not a Christian. But we have to be careful, don't we? Because you can care about obeying God's law and still not be a Christian. Why? Because you're serving in the old way of the the written code, That is, you're serving as a slave, you're obeying as a slave to the law and not as a son of God or a daughter of God. You're you're serving in a mercenary way, like the lawyer in Luke 10, to earn your salvation by your obedience. The Christian, the Christian obeys God, serves God, bears fruit for God by the power and the liberty of the Holy Spirit. We walk in, In the new way of the Spirit, we serve in the new way of the Spirit. We love the law of God. We know that we break it. We know that we disobey God. And we hate that. But we also know that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within our hearts. And so we keep the Ten Commandments, all ten of the Ten Commandments we strive to keep. But not in order to be saved, but because we've already been saved. That was the way it was even there back in Exodus 20. right? The preface to the Ten Commandments, I have delivered you from Egypt, therefore obey me. He didn't say, if you obey me, I'll deliver you from Egypt. He says, I've saved you. I've rescued you. I've delivered you. Now go and walk in obedience to my law. We don't obey in our own strength, but in the strength of the Holy Spirit. We obey with joy because we know that God's law describes the way of living that is best for us, the way of flourishing and, and, and functioning in the way that he has created us to function and to flourish. And so just like that athlete who transfers from one school to the other, right? for God's people who are transferred from the law to Christ, always, always it is for our good as we obey the Lord, serving him. So you've seen the picture a woman whose husband dies is free to marry another without any condemnation of being called an adulteress. You've seen the point. We have died to the law so that we might be married to Jesus, joined to him. The law no longer condemns us, it, it, it is no longer strangling us with its inability, no longer terrorizing us. We are dead to the law as a covenant of works. And we've seen the purpose so that we might bear fruit for God, that we might serve God in the spirit, that we might keep the law as a rule of life for the glory of God and for our good. I wanna close, take your hymnals and turn to page 859, not hymn 859, but page 859. At the very back of our hymnals, we find the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster Shorter Catechism. You may not have known that these even were here. But I want you to read a section in chapter 19, uh, the chapter on the law of God, that uh, the men who wrote this confession of faith in the 1640s so beautifully have written what Paul is teaching us here in Romans 7. Look at section 6 on page 859. Paul, uh, Paul, the Westminster Divines write this. Although true believers be not under the law, as a covenant of works, to be thereby justified or condemned. Yet is it of great use to them, as well as to others, in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God in their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts, and lives. So as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred against sin, together with a clear sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. Every time we look at the law of God, we see how sinful we are and how righteous Jesus was. But then they go on, it is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions in that it forbids sin. And the threatenings of it serve to show what even our sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse thereof, threatened in the law. The promises of it in like manner show them God's approbation, his approval of obedience, and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof, although not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works. It's it's a sheer gift of grace. So as they conclude, a man's doing good, And refraining from evil because the law encourages to the one and deters from the other is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. Do you see what they're saying? The law of God is good. And God's people ought to obey the law. And if they obey the law, it's not because they're legalists. It's because they've been married to Jesus. Married to Jesus to bear fruit for God. May the Lord make us more and more continually a people who love his law because we've been saved by grace, who do good, who refrain from evil, who avoid the ditch of legalism on the one hand and lawlessness on the other hand, because Jesus has made us his own. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word. Lord, thank you for this illustration. Thank you for this point you're driving home to us. Thank you, Lord, for the purpose for which you have saved us. Would you Help us and enable us to walk in the Spirit, to walk in the power of the Spirit, to put sin to death by the Spirit. Lord, to bear the fruit of the Spirit in every way. Lord, would you give to us a love for your law. Lord, we thank you that we are no longer bound to keep the law for our salvation. We are freed from the covenant of works, free to obey the law, in the power of the Spirit, with joy, knowing that we will fail, knowing that we will fall, but knowing that you forgive us, and your forgiveness, O Lord, leads us to fear you all the more. We pray that you would help us, O Lord, to walk in the narrow road of the gospel, avoiding the ditches of lawlessness, the ditches of legalism. Lord, keep us, we pray, in the straight and the narrow, that we might give you the glory might believe in Jesus with all of our heart and know that he is our righteousness and walk in righteousness by his grace. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.